Before we get into the text, actually, I read Acts from Acts 16, though. It's, um, it's been a heavy week. I mean, I think all of us that have watched the news know there's been a lot of violence. Uh, there's always violence happening literally every week, but in particular this week with Uvalde, uh, the shooting, uh, 19 children dead, two teachers dead. Um, if you have children, you work in education, you have grandchildren, you've been talking about this probably, um, you know, and just wrestling with, gosh, just, it just feels so overwhelming and so heartbreaking to watch scenes just and to see it all real time. Um, and not only there, think of just that as a mass shooting, and we kind of tend to focus our attention on that, but right here in our own neighborhood, this week in my, in my neighborhood, just like on our street, just at the end of our street, um, there was a, a child shot uh, at Tarkin and Park in South Butler, and then the next two, two nights later, uh, some teenagers that were involved, and so we had police all over the place, right, around hops and hoagie, hoagies and hops, um, and just, there's so much. I think last year we set a record 250 homicides in our city. Um, and in particular, there's a rise amongst teenagers uh, with uh, mental health issues and with violence. And so um, it's easy to get fixated on the larger things and miss, like, right here in our own community. These are our neighbors. These are our friends. These are, this is our family. And so I just want to um, invite us into uh, just a time of lament and prayer as we start off here, just to pray for these families. And I want to use the language. Uh, one of the beautiful things about uh, the Bible is it invites us into the real world. We don't have to shut our eyes and pretend like these things don't happen. And yet, when we feel like we don't have words, the Bible gives us words and gives us a vocabulary to enter in emotionally. And regardless of what you think about the politics of all of this, um, that, that kind of becomes the instant story. It's like the story about the story rather than what's actually happening with real people. And the scripture gives us language to be able to lament uh, injustice, to lament violence. And so I want to just invite us to pray together. And I'm going to use Psalm 94 as kind of our uh, jumping off point here, because here we have a psalm where people are experiencing, I mean, this is the, the world of the Bible is a world inhabited by violence. Like the violence, most of us probably can't even imagine. And, and so we, we enter in here emotionally with the psalmist as he's looking out at this world of violence and just saying, God, how long, how long do we continue to live in this? And what are you doing about it? And so I want to invite you just to to pray with me, um, and then we'll get started here in reading Acts 16. Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people. They oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the resident alien, and they murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. Our Father, we come to you with heavy hearts. And we thank you that you do see, that you do know, that you are paying attention that you are a God deeply concerned with justice, deeply invested in the flourishing of your world. And we do with the psalmist cry out, how long, O Lord? How long will wickedness and evil prevail? How long will violence continue to plague our friends, our family, our neighbors, our fellow citizens? God, it is overwhelming just to look out and to see the amount of violence, the amount of hatred and hostility that exists in our world. And so, God, we, we join our prayers to the prayers of your people around the world, and particularly in Uvalde today, and we lift up 
those families. We lift up the parents. We lift up siblings and grandparents and aunts and uncles who are without the faces and the stories and the futures of those that they love. They are devastated and their lives are forever changed. And God, we ask for just a deep comfort. I pray specifically, God, for your church to be your hands and feet, to just be making themselves available through prayer and listening and silence and words when it's appropriate, but mostly just the presence of Christ. God, I pray that they would reach out in word and deed with good news, that you are the king of the universe, that you have entered into this brokenness, and that you are making all things new again, and that there is hope in, in you. But God, we, we, we also know that there is just a lot of brokenness. And so God, we, we remember the words of Paul that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with gunmen and mass shooters and perpetrators of violence. Our war is with the evil one who is seeking to kill and to destroy and to steal life that you've granted to people. And so, God, we pray against the evil one. We pray against the evil schemes and effects that he stirs up in the world, the animosity, the hostility, the hatred. And, God, we pray that you would bind it. We pray that particularly, God, this morning in your church, that we would be a place of nonviolence, that you would cultivate in us hearts that are non-reactive, non-anxious, non-hostile, and God, that we would in our embodied life in our communities learn what it looks like to live a different way, to live a way of forgiveness, to live a way of self-sacrifice, to live a way of hospitality and openness and a radical trust and faith in you that does not... um, God does not seek to return evil for evil, but seeks to overcome evil with good, even if it means laying down our own lives. I pray that we would not love our own lives more than we would love you and love our neighbors and work for their shalom. And so, God, we, we just lift up all the complexities. We ask for your transforming presence to work in us and through us, and your mercy to be present with all those who are suffering, both here in our country and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 16, and that's going to be our text for this morning, Acts 16, starting in verse 11. If you don't own a Bible, there is a red one around you. Feel free to use that as your own. We're going to read verses 11 through 33. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. 
Paul was greatly annoyed, and turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, he and all his family were baptized. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love Acts 16. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, I've preached on the book of Philippians. If you've read the book of Philippians, this is kind of the precursor to the planting of the church in Philippi. And uh, as a church planter, I have come back to this passage over and over and over again for encouragement. It's such a, a powerful narrative of, of how God calls people into the, the work of uh, living out his mission in the world. And so um, I want to just point out as, as we get started, just to give you a little bit of backdrop in case you weren't here last week, um, how Paul found himself uh, and Paul and Silas and Timothy found themselves in Philippi. Because I think the call to Philippi to me is as interesting as what they do when they get to Philippi, although that's the main point of our text today. Let me show you a map uh, just to orient you in case you're uh, not an expert in ancient uh, Mediterranean uh, geography, right? So Paul is, uh, in chapter 15, we end the first Jerusalem council with Paul in Antioch over there to the right. And you can see the zigzag as he starts what's now known as his second missionary journey up into what's now uh, modern-day Turkey and then eventually over to Macedonia uh, and Greece uh, and into the heart of the Roman Empire, we're going to see. And so Paul goes up and he moves into Derby and into Lystra, and there he picks up a guy named Timothy. Now, what's really interesting about Timothy is that Timothy's mother is a Jew, and her fa- his father is Greek. So remember last week, the Jerusalem council ends with them solving the Jew-Gentile issue. Now, first, the first traveling companion of Paul is a guy in his body who represents the newness of the church, this bicultural reality of Jew and Gentile coming together. So Timothy uh, kind of starts traveling with Paul there. And then there's a series of, so normally the, the way to go from there would have been west. There was a path, a road that went uh, from Lystra all the way to Ephesus straight west. And you notice in the story, the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going there. He closes the door. We don't know how he does it, but he closes the door, makes it clear 
but they're not going west. So Paul's like, all right, how about north? Let's, let's start north. And so he takes off on another journey uh, north, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going north either. You're not going up to Bithynia, uh, up to the Black Sea. Um, you're not going there. So Paul's just like, okay, well, the only thing available and open now is to begin to move northwest. And you'll see like the zigzagging uh, of, of Paul's journey. And eventually they, they land in Troas. And Troas is where there's a shift in the narrative here in Acts 16 from they were doing this in the third person to now we are doing this, right? So Luke, most scholars believe, was probably from Troas. He was a physician and he was practicing there, maybe even a medical doctor for Paul and them as they traveled around. They pick up Luke and then they cross over the Aegean Sea and they begin to penetrate into the heart of the Roman Empire in this province, uh, province, Roman province of Macedonia. And they eventually come to Philippi. But what's interesting is in Troas, Paul has a vision, right? So he, he, he's it's like, God's saying, no, no, no. And then all of a sudden it's like, yes, I want you to go to Macedonia. And there's some man, some people think it's Alexander the Great. Some people think it's the jailer. We don't know. Uh, either way, he gets a vision and God finally brings uh, clarity. And he says, I want you to go to Macedonia and I want you to go to Philippi and then Thessalonica and then Athens and, and so forth. And we're going to see that over the next couple of months as we close out the book of Acts. And again, he, they, they end up in Philippi, a Roman colony, which uh, we're not going to say much about that, but it's a strategic urban center. Uh, basically, after the war where Julius Caesar was assassinated, if you know your history, uh, there was a big battle. And then, uh, you know, Octavian kind of uh, vindicates or, or gets revenge on uh, on the folks that assassinated him. And a lot of the people after that war, uh, ex-military, begin to settle into uh, Philippi and it's granted colony status, which basically just means that they operate off Roman law and Roman culture. It's treated like Rome if you live in, um, in Philippi. So all that to say, it's really interesting the way that Paul ends up in Philippi. The call, if you look at the difference between the first journey and the second journey, it's the same calling, right? It's the same strategy, right? Go to urban centers, the spirit kind of leading them into that. But the energy and the process are so radically different than Paul probably imagined. Remember, the first missionary journey, there's clarity, there's excitement, right? Like Paul and Barnabas get sent out by the church. There's all kinds of celebration. The spirit tells them, send them out. There's clarity around where they're going. But notice how the second missionary journey starts. It ends with Paul and Barnabas splitting up. It, it, it starts in pain. And then there's all kinds of just lack of clarity, right? Like confusion. We're, we're not going here. We're not going here. Yes, we're going here. And, um, and so I, I just find it interesting that, like, if you look at that, just like the roundabout way, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, one of my f- uh, favorite authors, she has a book uh, actually using this language about how God in the Exodus takes his people not straight from Egypt to the promised land, but actually takes them through the wilderness. She calls this the journey of the roundabout way. And we see this again with Paul. Um, Here's what she has to say about that, Ruth Haley Barton. She says, the roundabout way may not be the most direct route, but it represents a wonderful era in the spiritual life when God shows up in very tangible ways that assures us of his presence on the journey. And I think it's important for us to remember as we seek to live into God's mission in our own lives and his calling on our lives, that he doesn't do it the same way, even with the same people, he doesn't do it the same way twice. Like God is at work transforming pain in the second missionary journey, the pain of breakup, right? In this case, a sharp disagreement. That word we said last week was seizure, right? Like massive breakup with Paul and Barnabas. It starts with seizure and pain. 
And God is transforming that pain into progress through this intentional process on this missionary journey. And what I want to say about that to us is just to remember like how God calls, not just that he calls, because we might be finding ourselves similarly in a place where we feel confused, we feel broken, we feel pain in our lives, and we may not understand what God's doing. And all God seems to be doing is closing door after door after door. And like we thought we were going to be over here in Ephesus, and we've actually somehow ended up in Troas, and we're just like, God, what, what are you doing? And, and what I want to remind us of is that God is at work in us as much as he's at work through us, right? It's not just that we are ambassadors that like have a, a mission. It's that we are the mission. God is forming the inner architecture of our lives. And what he's doing is so mysterious oftentimes, right? It doesn't make sense. It's not always logical. It's confusing. It can be frustrating, right? Like this whole journey there took a lot longer than Paul ever thought. It was so different than Paul thought, right? I mean, it was 400 miles instead of just a short little jaunt. It ended up being 400 miles. And then it turns into a 10-year relationship where Paul's not just preaching the gospel to a guy, uh, some random guy in Macedonia, but a church is planted, right? So Paul thinks he's going to Macedonia to preach to God. Notice what happens in the story. He goes and ends up preaching to a community of women. So different than he ever thought, and it ends up being a church. But the end result of all of that is something better than Paul could have ever imagined. And so I just want to encourage us, wherever you find yourselves right now, God knows, God sees, God is superintending our lives. And what we can feel like the, a frustrating roundabout way actually is often the way that God forms us into a people with open hands who are continuing to trust him and be dependent on him for everything. Okay, so they end this kind of like circuitous route and they, they, um, we get to verse uh, 10. After he had seen this vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see the call of Paul and them to Philippi. Now we're going to see them begin to preach the gospel, right? This word, preach the gospel, is the word euangelizo, right? It literally means to good news. It doesn't mean to just like stand on the corner with a sandwich board sign, right? It's, it's good newsing. And we see this as one of the key words, key phrases. It's actually one single word that we can translate in a couple different ways, throughout the book of Acts. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is look at this good newsing as they go to some of these strategic urban centers. But I want to just pause for a second and acknowledge that I know that for some of us, when I say something like preaching the gospel, when I talk about evangelism, we immediately start to like feel a certain kind of way, right? Like for some of us, we have like an allergic reaction and maybe we have some baggage here, right? Like we live in a moment where I know for some of us, we're we're like embarrassed about the faith, right? We're embarrassed about what's going on in the church, right? And, and maybe just even asking the question like, why would I wanna share my faith? When I look at kind of what's happening in, in the American church and the evangelical church, and I look at all the damage that's being done, like I think for some of us, we just wanna like put our head in the sand and just like avoid controversy. Like the last thing I wanna do is go out and talk about Jesus in the church right now. We see political idolatry, where people are identifying more with a political party than they are with Jesus. We see, and we've talked about, you know, the kind of the colonization of uh, mission work around the world when people go and they take Western culture and they kind of export it and then impose it on different cultures. And some of us have experiences with that. 
Um, just this week, I'm sure that many of you saw that the tradition I grew up in, the Southern Baptist Convention, they released a massive report um, where we just begin to see like this nasty, disgusting cover-up of abuse, right? And, um, and, it's, and it's awful. And we're just like, what, what gives? I, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to share this. Is this what we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus, sharing the gospel? Is this good news for anybody, for victims? And I get that. I, I just want to acknowledge that. And I know that for some of us, it's a barrier to just share because we, we feel like we're imposing or we feel like we're oppressing as we seek to invite others into this work of sharing the gospel. One, one of my favorite authors, um, he was a kind of a novelist and a pastor of a generation ago. His name's Frederick Buechner. He, he addresses this, and he was talking about this in his own time, because this has always been the case, right? There's always been brokenness in the church, and yet people have still had to embrace this calling to share the good news of Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, I believe that no matter how tedious, unimaginative, banal, unconvincing, and seemingly irrelevant the church's proclamation of the mystery of a loving God often is, or how cheapened, flamboyant, phony, if you happen to watch some of the religious vaudeville available on American TV, now we'd say social media now, right? He's writing a couple decades ago. That mystery is as much a part of reality as the air we breathe. What he's saying is regardless of how it's being preached, the good news of Jesus is still reality. And underneath all of the critique that our culture is heaping, and rightly so in a lot of cases on the church, there is a desire for people to, that are crying out to be rescued, that are crying out for transcendence and meaning and purpose and a hope in a world of cynicism, right? Like people's lives are falling apart. The secular script is not working. The religious script is not working for people, and they need to be saved. They need to be rescued. They need to experience hope, and so we can't stop doing what is modeled here in the life of Jesus and what's modeled here in the life of the apostles just because of the abuse, right? The thing done wrong means we need to start doing it better, right? Like we don't go out, how many of you guys food poisoning, you know, at some point? Like you don't stop going to restaurants because you had a bad meal. You just say, I'm going to go to places that don't, you know, give me food poisoning. You still go out. So, but what we've done is reacted to this over here that we see is broken by coming over here and saying, well, let's just not do it anymore. And that's not, we, we can't do that. The, a better question, we, we taught a class last fall, um, a guy named John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City, one of my favorites on kind of like missional living and how to think about the mission of God. He has a class called The Missional Life, and we taught that here last year, and he asked a great question. I think this is the question that we're, we're brought to here in the book of Acts. And, and I wanna just kind of like redeem evangelism here for us for a moment, but he asked this question. How do we bring the good news of Jesus without coercion and the cultural baggage that seems to do so much damage. That's what we want, right? We want the good news of Jesus to be made plain because we know what it's like. If you're a follower of Jesus, right? Like every survey says the majority of millennials think sharing your faith is dangerous, that it's oppressive, that it's toxic. But here's what studies also tell us about millennial Christians. Over 90% of them say coming into a relationship with Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to them. So how do we reconcile? This is extremely good news that I need, and yet, don't tell me about it. <laughs> that's the paradox of what we're living in right now. And like, if somebody had not done that with you, where would you be right now? So what we want to do is to bring the good news of Jesus without coercion, without cultural baggage, without damage, without violence. 
and we want to see it a different way. So that's what we're going to be talking about the next few months. We want to go look at several of these narratives through the, book, the rest of the book of Acts. It's all about Paul and his buddies preaching the good news of Jesus in all kinds of different cities, and they go before political leaders, the cultural elite. And I just want us to look at Paul um, at the gospel and how it goes out to urban cities, how it begins to, and in 17.6, you're going to see that it actually begins to gain a reputation because it's turning the world upside down, right? That the way of Jesus begins to have such an impact that it's disrupting things and it's also transforming things. That's what we want. How did that happen and how did this begin to then explode throughout the Roman Empire? And I want to look at those themes and those patterns through the rest of Acts. And then in August, we're actually going to zoom out and we're going to look at the Gospels, how Jesus did this, and we're going to do a formation series on preaching the Gospel, where we're going to invite you to begin to practice with us and to begin to figure out how do we do this in our particular cultural moment, okay? So that's the plan for the next couple months, okay? So this morning, all I want you to see in Acts 16 is these profiles of conversion, right? Acts 16 gives us three profiles, and there's so much that we can learn. What I love about Acts 16, it gives us the granular, like, individual narratives. The rest of the book of Acts is, like, cities and people groups and, you know, philosophers and the academy. Here we just have three individuals whose lives are changed as they encounter the good news. And I just want to recap this story and then talk about what invitations might God have for us as we think about doing this work now. So, three people, Lydia... The, the, what's, the girl who's referred to here is the slave girl or the oppressed girl, and then the Philippian jailer. So let's start with Lydia. And I think these are profiles of different kinds of people that live in our cities that we are going to encounter uh, who need the good news of Jesus. So Lydia, first, is uh, essentially this wealthy businesswoman, a wealthy entrepreneur. She's a fashionista. So she's from the city Thyatira, uh, which is a city in Asia Minor right across the Aegean Sea from, uh, from where Paul and them are at currently in Philippi. It says she's a dealer in purple dyes. Purple was a sign of luxury, was a sign of royalty. So think of like, you know, social media influencer with like really high-end oils, right? Like that's kind of Lydia's deal. She's like a regional franchise owner, and she travels back and forth between uh, Asia Minor and Macedonia. And she sells purple dye, which was essentially a luxury item for the super wealthy that was made from shellfish off the coast of Thessalonica. So she's wealthy, she's a cosmopolitan, and as one uh, commentator put it, she's a beautiful person who sells beautiful things to beautiful people, right? That's how we kind of might think of her. And she's a seeker, right? She is a, she's a seeker of Yahweh. So Paul comes into the city. He finds this place of prayer because there was no synagogue. His normal practice is to go to the synagogue. You had to have a quorum of 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. There apparently was not a quorum. So they gathered outside, right? You couldn't just show up into a city and start doing street preaching. You would get arrested. So you have to establish kind of a base. Paul goes to this place of prayer, hoping he can find some seekers. And he begins to just share the good news of Jesus. And he finds Lydia there. And Lydia, it says, is a God-fearer. God-fearer is a technical term for basically a Gentile who either couldn't or didn't want to become a full-fledged Jewish proselyte, but they were seeking Yahweh. Notice they're reading the scriptures, they're praying, there's a hunger for truth, there's a hunger for meaning, something is not working, there's a dissatisfaction, right? Like, and, and this is really 
If you've ever been in this spot and you've been a seeker, you've been a skeptic, like this is where a lot of people find themselves in our cultural moment. Like a, a skeptic as a person who's, or a seeker is a person who's caught between two realities, right? Like polytheism and paganism is not working for her, right? She's tried the gods of Rome. She's tried all that Rome and the Roman Empire has to offer to her, and she's found it empty. So there's a dissatisfaction with kind of the secular script of her day. But she comes over here to Judaism, and there's also a dissatisfaction with the burden of religion, right? Because to be a Jew meant you had to conform to the law, the Torah, all the stuff we talked about last week, the burden of trying to be good enough to be righteous and to find your way with God. And so she finds herself between these two places. And Paul shows up, and he just shares with her the truth, right? And I, and I love this, right? Like, it's so encouraging. Paul shares the good news of Jesus with her, and the Lord opens her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Jesus says something like this to her. Jesus is the king. He is the one you're looking for. He is the Messiah. He kept the law. You don't have to keep the law. Jesus kept the law for you. He gave himself as a sacrifice for your sins, for the sins of the world. And now he's inviting you as a Gentile. You don't have to become Jewish, right? That was Acts 15. You don't have to become Jewish. You are now invited as a Gentile into this new multi-ethnic family. And something about that is just, just explodes in her heart. And again, notice like the Lord is doing this. Paul doesn't make this happen. The Lord opens her heart. And, and it says that she was listening and then she was attracted to. That's that word respond. So one, one person put it like this, that here you have a beautiful person selling beautiful things to beautiful people and all of a sudden she encounters the most beautiful truth of her life, the good news of Jesus. And it just activates something in her and she becomes a Christian. So that's, that's kind of profile number one. Lydia, this wealthy but dissatisfied seeker. Profile number two is the slave girl, right? And there's a lot that could be said here uh, about this story, um, but I, I just want to quickly do this. So this is essentially a young girl. She's, uh, the word here is slave. So she's probably between 10 and 14 years old. She was likely, most scholars believe, sold into this lifestyle of divination, uh, divining by her family for money. Um, and she is a woman that is oppressed by several powerful forces, right? You've got spiritual powers at work. So it says she has the spirit of the python, which the spirit of the python was kind of a thing in the Greco-Roman world. They had these oracles, one in particular, the oracle of Delphi, where uh, Delphi and, and the gods had slain the great snake or dragon. And people would go seeking the priestesses of Apollo and they were believed to have the power of divination to be able to tell the truth and do all this fortune telling. And they actually called these people ventriloquists because their voice would literally change. And it was like something was coming over them. And like, if you're a female, it's like poltergeist stuff. We are like, people's heads are spinning. And then all of a sudden there's like, you know, like a male voice. And, and, and but they were able to, like some of them were able to actually tell the future in such a way that brought profit to their owners. And so, like, this is probably demon possession, right? It's most likely what, what's going on here is some demon possession, okay? So she's got spiritual powers at work. There's political and institutional powers at work, right? Um, notice that she's being exploited by her owners. That word owner in the Greek is the word kyrios, the same word that's used of Jesus, Lord. So she has lords that are using her fortune-telling gift and this possession for profit. And I just want to point out the convergence here of powerful forces that are still at play in our cities today. The spiritual, the religious, the political, the marketplace systems, 
that are in league together to benefit from the misuse of power and greed and corruption, right? It's satanic, it's systemic, it's all there together, it's personal, it's structural. We, we see how complex sin is in the Bible. It's all here for us to see. And she walks around, so she's, she's being oppressed, and she's walking around just essentially like yelling at them, right? And it doesn't sound bad. Like this is, like some people read this and they're like, oh, she's kind of like evangelizing. You know, she's proclaiming, she's preaching a gospel, right? Like proclaiming the way of salvation, the servants of the Most High God. But here's the thing. Remember, this is a pagan woman. She has no background in Judaism. So when she says salvation, that word salvation just meant healing or prosperity or deliverance, right? Like Jews use that word, but so did Gentiles. And when she says servants of the Most High God, she's referencing there Zeus and the local pantheon of gods, right? Not Yahweh, right? She is uh, just following them around, basically saying, here's Zeus, and they're bringing prosperity. And so actually what she's doing is mocking, the demons through her are mocking and misleading people about who Paul and Otherwise, why would they got annoyed? Paul had been like, great, free, free evangelism. You know, like she's saying the same thing we are. Um, so he, what I love here, though, is like, she's, she's like Gollum. You, you guys ever watched Lord of the Rings? Just bring it in. Like, like Gollum's attracted to like the power of the ring. And so there's some spiritual magnetic pull towards their spiritual authority and power. And yet she hates it at the same time, right? Like that's how Satan kind of operates. And so I love just the, the realness of the narrative here. Paul just gets annoyed. He's like, would you just stop? Like this is super annoying that you're going around yelling and shrieking all the time. And he casts out a demon and she's liberated from these powers and it doesn't specifically say she's converted, but we can draw that inference. In Luke Acts, whenever a demon is cast out, Jesus is right behind, filling the person with his power and presence. And so we can kind of assume that she became uh, a disciple because of that pattern. And so the, it stirs up this big thing. And again, we see some foreshadowing here. Uh, they get arrested. Uh, there's a pun here in the Greek. The, the demon comes out, and then her owners realize that their hope of profit was gone. Literally, the demon is gone, and the hope of profit is gone. It's the same uh, word in the, in the Bible there. And so um, just notice, like, this, uh, these men bring, uh, they arrest them, they bring them before the city, and they say, these men are disturbing our city. When the gospel begins to be at work in communities, it stirs up opposition from the powers, from the spiritual powers, economic powers, political powers, institutional powers. And, and they kind of pull the card that's, like, been pulled Really, like in every society sense, like it's the Jews' fault, right? They blame the Jews. Uh, they, they, they stir up kind of like a, a nationalism and a fear of foreigners and the others. They're saying like, they're not us, and so we need to be afraid of them because they're bringing in these strange customs, and they appeal to people's base instincts and fear of the other, and they stir them up and whip up the crowd, and eventually Paul and, uh, Paul and uh, Silas get thrown into jail. And so now we meet the third uh, person here, the jailer. And the jailer is uh, most likely uh, an ex-military guy. He's probably blue collar. He, he works for the government. And I just want you to notice, like, he is not open to having conversation with Paul and Silas. He is not interested in, in Jesus at all. Uh, and, and one of the defining characteristics of this man is he's hardened, right? He's just cruel, he doesn't wash their wounds. He throws them in the inner cell, which is like the inner part of the dungeon where there's no light outside. He fastens, he chains them to each other in stocks, which is the most painful way to secure a prisoner. Um, essentially, he's torturing them, right? He's torturing them. And, um, and so we see this guy closed off and totally cruel and violent. Verse 26, there's a violent earthquake that shakes the foundations of the jail. The doors are opened and everyone's chains came loose. 
When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and he was going to kill himself, right? Because it's an honor-shame culture. If you dishonored the magistrates by allowing these men to go free, the kind of the common practice was you just you committed suicide. And so uh, in that moment, Paul says, stop. Don't do that. Let me show you a different way. And in that moment, Paul is offering actually forgiveness for the, this man who's tortured him, his oppressor. And then the Philippian jailer, looking around, amazed that nobody ran, says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And again, let's not overdo that with, you know, like he's not asking like, how, do I, how am I justified by faith in God? And he's just basically saying, how do I get out of the, this mess? That's the translation there. How do I get out of this immediate mess that we're in right here? He's not thinking cosmic. He's just thinking like very practical. And, and that's how some of us come to God. We have a mess in our lives. And we're just like, how do I get out of this mess? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in him. I mean, I imagine this to sound something like this. You think this is a mess. There's a much bigger mess than you can even imagine going on, right? This earthquake is a sign of God's judgment on the world. It's an invitation to escape not only the corruption of this prison cell, but the sin, the idolatry, the injustice, the violence, which characterizes your life and this entire system of which you're Apart, trust in Jesus, he says, the risen Messiah and King who is bringing into the world a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you can find life, the life that is truly life. All I want us to notice here about the jailer is that, again, you have a guy who's closed to the gospel, but because of this crisis of the earthquake and watching the goodness of the gospel embodied in Paul and Silas, that is the catalyst for him to believe the good news of Jesus, right? He watches and he sees the forgiveness that Paul and Silas offer. He sees the fact that Paul doesn't use his privilege to get out of jail, right? Paul could have said, hey, at the very beginning, I'm a Roman citizen. But Paul, wanting to set an example for this church and knowing that they too are under the threat of violence, refuses to use his privilege till afterwards, after he comes out of prison, He's watching that. He's watching them singing with joy in the midst of their suffering. He's watching the forgiveness. He's watching the way they serve him, even in prison. And that, that like if, if what we see in um, Lydia is a beautiful gospel message, a beautiful truth kind of exploded in her, and what we see in the slave girl, the oppressed girl, is a beautiful power that liberates her, what we see here is beautiful lives that speak to the reality of the gospel in a way that he can actually see right in front of him. And it's that beauty that melts him and opens him up to the gospel. And again, Paul and Silas are not doing anything new, right? Like there's a pattern in the book of Acts that these people are doing exactly what Jesus did, right? Jesus came into this world. He laid down his life with a kind of joy and a freedom and a sacrificial love. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's flogged. He dies on the cross for the sins of the world, and he's raised to life. Like Paul and Silas are entering into that and just embodying the story of Jesus with their very lives. And that is the thing that leads to transformation in this case. And there's this beautiful um, ending to the story of the jailer where he he washes their wounds. Like there's some irony there. John Christensen, one of the early church fathers preaching a sermon on this, says he washes them and then they wash him. Right? He washes their wounds and they baptize him and his household. He's saved. So what do we learn from that? How do we, how do we, what's God's invitation for us in the midst of these stories? Just two things I want us to see and then we'll close. First thing, 
First thing that we see in this story, these stories, these, these narrative accounts, is that this is God's heart. God's heart is to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I've come not for the righteous, I've come to seek and to save the lost. This is what God's doing, right? All throughout this story, it's so encouraging that God is the one who leads them, God is the one that opens up hearts. God is the one that is initiating. God is the missionary. He is the evangelist, not really primarily Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? God is at work. He is seeking. He is saving. So what is our job? Our job is to simply watch in our lives where God is at work seeking and saving lost people and then to just join him in the work, right? Join him in what he's doing. We don't have to make things happen. Like as you go out this week into your workplaces, I was talking to a guy this week, he was on a job interview uh, this morning after the first service. He was on a job interview this week. And uh, in the midst of this job interview, he's like, I'm here to try to get a job. I need money. I'm here to get a job. And this guy breaks down and begins to open up his life and just talk about his divorce and the devastation he was walking through in his life. And it was a crisis of his life. And all of a sudden, here I am just sharing the good news of Jesus and praying for this guy. And now we're going to get back together this next week and talk some more and pray some more. It's like, I go in for a job interview. God's at work. As you go out into your workplace, as you go into your families, as you go into your neighborhoods, you don't have to make things happen. Isn't that, isn't that, like, doesn't that just encourage you? Like, you don't have to gin something up. You don't have to stand out with a sandwich board. I mean, you don't have to do it. Like, God is at work in the world. This is what God is doing with or without us. But he invites us in on one of the most exciting things that can happen in the universe to experience transformation, right? And so we have to see this as something God is doing, and he calls us into it, right? Like, we have to have a sense of calling about this, or we're never going to do it, right? We're just not going to want to do that. I know that, like, conversion sounds super, like, manipulative and coercive, but again, like, everybody's trying to convert everybody every day, right? Like, people are trying to convert you about their politics, about their vision of sexuality, about their economic theories, about the latest conspiracy theory. Like, we're always being converted and trying to convert each other, right? Like, if you're in sales, like, they're actually explicit about it. You ever heard of a conversion funnel, right? Like, that's the whole point. It's like, get people to buy your product and become fans, become loyal customers. Now, we're not engaging in those kind of tactics, but we are in the business of conversion. We are in the business of sharing the good news because we believe that we have experienced something life-changing. And like anything that we love, I mean, like you guys, I spend time with y'all, all you talk about is coffee, all you talk about is wine, you talk about food, all the latest restaurants. You do it when you love something, you just share it with other people right? Like you can't not do it. You're on social media doing it all the time. But when it comes to Jesus, it's like, oh, I don't know. I just feel weird. Okay, it's the same thing. And so I just want to encourage us, like this is what God is doing and what God is inviting us into. And the question for some of us is just, do we have eyes to see and ears to hear, right? As I go out of my neighborhood, do I go out slowly, prayerfully, as I'm walking around, how can I bring the good news of Jesus to this space? I, God has placed me. He's going to say in Acts 17, you've been placed in this season for this reason, to embody the good news of Jesus. And the question, just a real simple question, question to be asking ourselves is, where is God at work? And how can I just help somebody take the next step? Some of us are so afraid because like, I don't know what to say. And what if they ask me this really hard question? Or what if they talk about abuse? Okay, like, what about just what's the next step with this person, right? Like, I walk into Starbucks. I, I work every Sunday morning in Starbucks, writing my sermon. And I hear all the employees always talking about how bad they, their experiences are with the church, how bad their experiences are with Jesus. I mean, there are a lot of wounded, hurting people that work at Starbucks for, with the church. 
And, and I just listen, and I'm like, man, God, I don't have an opportunity right now to like share the full gospel message with these people, but what if I just show up and I become, for a person who's hostile and who's wounded, what if the next step for them is just to meet like a real Christian who really loves Jesus and who can kind of restore some credibility? And just by me being pleasant, me being kind, me offering a word of prayer or a blessing, I can move them along in their journey to the next step. And I might not be the one. Paul says some water, you know, some plant, some water, but God gives the growth. Right? And so maybe it's a word of blessing. Maybe it's listening, right? Like our evangelism, I think, would be so much more effective if we would stop talking sometimes and just listen. Right? Hear their story. Understand where they're coming from. Understand where their hurts are, their pains are, their wounds are, before we just go talking at them. Right? Recognizing God's been in this person's life and he will be in this person's life before I came and after I came. So it may be prayer, it may be listening, it may be blessing, it may be restoring credibility, it may just be sharing our testimony, our story with them. But it's encouraging to know that God is at work and we just simply get to join him. Second thing, quickly, um, is uh, evangelism itself, the work of evangelism, um, the, the spiritual practice of evangelism and sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. I think we see three characteristics of it in this story. It should be holistic, it should be flexible, and it should be communal. Holistic, flexible, and communal. Let me explain just quickly what I mean by that. Holistic, meaning uh, you on Galizo, some, some, some city or a person, to good news them means that it's both word and deed, right? It's truth and compassion. It is justice and evangelism, right? All of those things need to be held in tension as we think about sharing the good news with people. It addresses, furthermore, it's, it's comprehensive and it's holistic because it addresses the complex nature of sin, right? It addresses people's personal need. It addresses social need. It addresses spiritual roots of sin and institutional aspects of sin. All of that is at play. And our good newsing must address sin at all those levels if it's to be faithful as we see here in the book of Acts, right? So it's holistic. It's flexible, right? By flexible, I just, sorry, I lost my voice talking last night. Um, by flexible, I mean it's attuned to the unique situations and needs of the listener. We have three different kinds of people in the story, Lydia, the press girl, and the jailer with three different journeys and three different needs, right? And so we need to be attentive to those things, and we need to be paying attention because each one of those people needs different things. A seeker needs something different than somebody who's oppressed, who needs something different than somebody who is hardened and closed, when I was doing my uh, MDiv uh, in uh, kind of intercultural studies and, and like missional living, I, I came across this. I want to th- throw this up here because I think it's a really helpful way to think about this. Uh, this next slide is called the Engel scale. There's a guy named James, James Engel who's a missiologist who developed this scale. And it basically plots people on a spectrum from no knowledge of God or no awareness, no categories for God, all the way up to like a you know, reproducing disciple at the top. And you could probably now, this is a little bit dated, but you could probably drop down even further and talk about hostility and how people, it's not even that they're neutral, they're just, they're anti, right? Like they're hostile now, um, especially those who grew up around the church and have had bad experiences. But you can plot people on here and you begin to realize like people show up in different places. And so if I'm assuming everybody's right at like repentance and faith in Christ, and that's my first message to somebody that's hostile, of course I'm gonna turn them off, right? Of course they're not gonna be open. They're not ready, 
So like a person at the bottom, they need to be, there's some preparation that needs to be done versus the person that's like just ready and needs the dots connected, right? Old models of evangelism assume that all the dots are there and we just, like that little game where you connect the dots, we just need to connect the basic dots. But like how many of our friends don't know the story of Jesus? They think they know the story of Jesus, but they actually know a distorted story of Jesus. And so we've got to go back and, and kind of do what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, right? You heard it said this in the church you grew up in, but I say this to you. This is actually what Jesus said. And so we've got to do that work. We've got to recognize there's different levels of awareness, and we've got to be sensitive to that. Then the next slide, um, not only is there different levels of awareness, there's different levels of openness, right? A spectrum of openness from vehemently opposed on the left, which is, I think, where we find the Philippian jailer, um, all the way to Lydia on the right, hungry and open and seeking. And if next slide, you put those together, you have this great little two-by-two. I love two-by-twos. This great little two-by-two. And we begin to go, where's this person coming from? You know, like, where's this person coming from? So we have to the right people who are curious and open. A person that is open needs truth, right? Like, they're hungry, they're seeking. They need truth, right? Like, we live in a world of lies. We live in a world of fake news and conspiracies and failing stories, right? Like, the secular script is failing. The religious script, in a lot of ways, is failing, they're being exposed in many cases, just power grabs and about control and manipulation and self-interest. And what people need is the true story of Jesus. They're longing for a better story and yet they don't know where to go. And what those people just need is truth. Here's, truth is just reality, right? Here's reality, here's life in God's world. I have so many people that long for truth. The question is, do we have the courage to just speak it to them? Jesus said about this work, he says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth. You will know reality in me. I am truth. I'm here. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth will set you free. The truth of Jesus is what has the power to satisfy the longing in our soul. And if we're going to bring that truth, we're going to have to do a lot of work. Again, there are a lot of people, I think the majority of like the deconstruction, deconversion movement, the majority of what we're seeing in a lot of our friends is on the left side, right? They're growing cynical because they've had bad experiences and they're closed and, and, they're, and they're, not, they're not open to truth. But, but there are some who are curious, right? But we're going to have to separate the truth of Jesus from how people tend to think of Jesus in terms of uh, the fusion of like culture and po- politics with evangelicalism, right? Paul Hebert, the great missionary um, to Africa, uh, as he was going to Africa, he noticed, I'm bringing more to Africa than just Jesus. I'm also bringing my culture. And, and this is what he had to say in, in doing this work of differentiation to be an effective missionary. He says, as Christians, we are often unaware that our beliefs are frequently shaped more by our culture than by the gospel. We take our Christianity to be biblically based and normative for everyone. We do not stop to ask what parts of it come from our sociocultural and historical context and what parts come from Scripture. We fail to recognize that many of the assumptions and values that underline our, underlie our culture are not biblically based. They are human creations. And that, I believe, is what people are reacting to, the cultural version of Christianity, not the true message of Jesus. That, that's offensive in its own right, but in our moment, especially if you're younger in your generation, there is a massive wave of people leaving the church because they're responding to that, not to Jesus. And so we need to keep that in mind as we're thinking about the work that we're doing. So open people need truth, and then closed people need credibility, right? Can we go back to that slide, Lil? Um, that closed people need credibility, right? They are despairing. They are cynical. They, are, they feel betrayed. Many of them have been abused. 
And, and what they need is not more words about God. They've heard all the words. What they need to see is the beauty of it lived out by Christians. Live your life, Peter says, in such a way that people will see your good deeds, glorify your Father in heaven. Live such good lives among the pagans that they'll ask you about the hope. Leslie Newbegin, the great missionary, says it like this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. And I would say people like this, people in this quadrant are particularly open during times of crisis. Personal crisis, cultural crisis, which, hello, look around, we've had a little bit of that going on. We have a tremendous opportunity. And that's, somebody said something like made me stand up this week. I was listening to a sermon and his pastor said, um, what a great time to be alive. And I was like, are you smoking? Like, are you crazy? I was like, no, what a great time to be alive. Everybody's in crisis. These scripts are failing. What a great time to be on mission with Jesus and to be able to offer up beautiful lives that don't point to ourselves, but point to the beauty of God in us as he's transforming us and making us more like Jesus. We have a tremendous opportunity to embody what Paul talks about in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the euangelizo, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the King. I'm not ashamed. It's God's power for salvation. And we are in a moment where that power can be seen less by and I hate to say this because it's not less than words, but less by our words and more by living beautiful lives, adorned lives with the beauty of the gospel being made known in our lives. And when we live those lives, we'll have opportunities to say those words. And that's what turned the Roman Empire upside down, right? It was the beauty of their lives in community. It was what one person calls their moral ecology, right? Like the goodness of their community. And I just want to throw this slide up. Like, it was so countercultural. It was so beautiful. Larry Hurtado in his book, The Destroyer of the Gods, talks about the kinds of lives that Christians live and how it challenged the narratives on both the right and the left. And if you look at this list, this is what the Christians were known for. Every sociological study on the history of the church says, this is why people were coming into the church, right? And again, notice this isn't just, there's no right or left thing here, right? Some of these look progressive. Some of these look conservative, Non-retaliation, no, nobody does that, right? Like, like when we're struck, we're not gonna fight back, we're not gonna make you bleed, we're gonna, we're gonna forgive, we're gonna reconcile, we're gonna lay down our lives rather than defend our lives. This is what made Christianity absolutely unique in the marketplace of gods in the Roman Empire. So let's just close, we gotta, we gotta be done. Um, I wanna honor our time and get you guys out of here. Um, I wanna close just by inviting us into communion together as we do each week. And just a time for us just to search our hearts and to kind of ask God what might be stirred up in us. I don't know where you're coming from, your background. You may be here and you may be a seeker like Lydia. You might be just a hardened skeptic and maybe you're here and you're not really even excited that you're here. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but man, you've just been ashamed to, to share uh, the good news of Jesus and not really sure how to do that. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but I just want to, us to be reminded that, that like, this, is, this is the work that we're invited into as Christians. God transforming us with the good news of Jesus, right? Internalizing the beauty, the truth, the goodness of Jesus in our lives. We come to communion. That's what we celebrate, right? We celebrate the fact that Jesus is for us all that we can't be for ourselves. And as that work of transformation is happening, we turn from trusting in anything else other than him, and we trust in him alone, and he's renewing us and changing us. We then offer our embodied lives to a watching world. And so as we come to communion, this is a time for us to confess our sins. This is a time for us to be reminded that Jesus is with us and for us. If you're a Christian, which is to say you're just trusting in Jesus as your Messiah and King, we invite you to receive communion here in just a moment. Our ushers will come and pass out the elements. Just hang on to those for a moment. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We pray, we pray this can be a safe place for you to wrestle and to ask questions and to do life with. I mean, again, that was the last thing. Community is the way that people come to know Jesus, right? In communities of people, they see the gospel lived out. And maybe that's you. You're here and you're asking those questions and we're glad that you're here. But we'd invite you to not take communion as others do. This is a family meal to be shared by disciples of Jesus. So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll take communion together and we'll sing this last song and send you out. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for uh, this text here in Acts, this narrative, which shows us what it looks like to live out a a vibrant life with you. God, to live in all the confusion, the mystery that is following your call in our lives. God, to live into uh, this uh, invitation to proclaim your good news in word and deed with our words, with our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our industries, our workplaces, everywhere we go. So God, would you just empower us, your people, to trust you, to be looking for you at work this week, to be holistic and to be partnering with other brothers and sisters, to be flexible and seeing kind of the ways your work in our community and just to, to join you in this work of salvation that you're doing here in Indianapolis and beyond. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.